Reaching the top of Mount Everest without an oxygen tank requires incredible willpower. And I remember having to literally breathe and count 15 breaths for every step that I took, and then willing myself to take that next step. And that goes on for 12 hours on that summit day. Veteran climber Ed Viesters tells us what it's like to scale the world's tallest mountain on its own terms. Russ Reimer explains what the planet's disappearing languages have to teach us about the different ways other cultures define their world. Being nomadic, they see possessions as a burden. Your possessions are the things you have to carry. So they see wealth as a problem, and wealth that's not shared they see as a sin. And Venice makes the list of the world's most endangered places thanks to the impact of big cruise ships. It's really hard to manage some of these large groups that all arrive at once. Take a closer look at the world we share in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Since the words you speak define how you look at the world, coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll learn what the world loses every few weeks when, somewhere on Earth, another language dies off. And Ed Viesters tells us how he's made it to the top of Mount Everest and back again seven times. 67 heritage sites have just been added to the latest watch list of endangered places by the World Monuments Fund. Erica Avrami joins us to explain what this includes. Erica, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. What is the World Monuments Fund and what is the World Monuments Fund Watch Program? The World Monuments Fund is an organization that's nearly 50 years old and was established to help promote the preservation of important sites all around the world. The Venice floods back in 1965 were one of the early uh, reasons why WMF became involved in this sort of work. Mm. And the World Monuments Watch actually is an advocacy program that we started in 1996. And every two years, we publish a list of sites um, that are endangered or that have some sort of issue that really needs attention. And it's about promoting awareness, raising international attention about the needs of these sites and their importance to society. Why are these sites important to society? How do you, because it costs a lot of money and a lot of people are saying, we just can't afford that. How do you defend spending money on heritage sites? We need to understand how important they are to people. It's not just the places, but it's also the contributions they make to sustainable development, to economies through tourism and also to our own social identity and our cohesion and cultural continuity. These really are reminders of our past, and as well, they're sort of beacons for the future. They, they help us understand the connections we have within our own cultures and to other cultures. And when they're gone, they're gone. And when they're gone, they definitely are gone. Give me three or four examples of a, of a place that's worth defending and, and why it would be at risk. Well, there are all sorts of risks out there. Two from this watch, the 2014 watch, are under threat of conflict. In Syria, for example, heritage sites are being tremendously damaged and in some cases destroyed as a result of the conflict there. In Mali, we've seen a great deal of destruction as well. The mausoleums in Timbuktu, for example, and other sites that have been endangered because of some of the conflict that's occurred in the northern part of the country. You've got violent groups, uh, Muslim fundamentalist groups or whatever, attacking uh, symbols of Mali's heritage. You've got a, a country at war in Syria. This is actually dangerous to go there and protect these places. How do you do that? I mean, how do you protect something in Syria? The first thing is advocacy. The first thing is raising awareness. And whether it's through a petition like we've done for Syria or trying to do assessments of the damage that has been done, these are first steps toward long-term recovery. And things that are also endangered from natural disaster as well also take a long time and take a great deal of sort of steps toward understanding conditions and rectifying the situation. The earthquake sites in eastern Japan, for example, were on the watch in 2012 and again in 2014 mm. because it takes a while to recover from these disasters. Mm-hmm. Uh, the gingerbread houses of Haiti and Port-au-Prince mm. were also on the watch in um, 2010 and 2012, again, because the effects of that earthquake were so devastating. It takes years to rebuild. Okay, Erica, you've got these precious uh, sites under risk in Japan and Venice and Syria and Haiti. Do you need a local group that's going to spearhead this protection work that you would then advocate for, or do you actually get into the trench and do it yourself? It's a combination of both. 
the watch program is really a, a sort of bottom-up program. We accept nominations from people all around the world. So they come to us with the needs of all sorts of places, and then we use reviewers and a panel of experts to help determine those in which we can affect the best sort of positive change in a two-year watch cycle. Do you affect the change by supporting groups that are going to protect the site, or do you actually protect the site yourself? Well, we don't own sites, but we do in some cases get very involved in projects. So we often partner with a local organization. But at the end of the day, long-term stewardship is really up to the local organizations that have the care and management of these sites in their hands. I would think uh, an endangered site would be much have a much better chance of surviving whatever threatens it if it has a local organization that recognizes the importance of that, that you could then empower. Absolutely. How does tourism impact sites of importance to our different cultures, heritage, uh, good and bad? Tourism is definitely a double-edged sword. I think that we can see very positive effects of tourism. Route 66, our infamous mother road here in the United States, was on the watch in 2008. Hmm. And World Monuments Fund helped to support the development of an economic impact study that looked at the extremely positive effects of heritage tourism all along Route 66, Hmm. um, creating jobs, helping local economies all the way up to the national economy. So it really has a very good effect. And in fact, we're about to host an event to look into how we can better capitalize on those opportunities for tourism. But at the same time, you can see other places where tourism that's not properly managed is actually deteriorating the asset, Mm. the the thing that's Mm. really important and why people want to go there. Mm. Venice, for example, which is on the 2014 watch, is there because we're trying to raise awareness about the impacts of cruise tourism in Venice. Now, how does cruise tourism impact Venice in a, in a negative or concerning way? There's been a 400% increase over the last, I believe, five years in tourism through cruise ships coming to Venice. And during the peak season, there can be 20,000 tourists debarking from hmm. these mega cruise ships, which are now going into the Judeca Canal. And so that kind of influx of people into uh, these delicate heritage areas um, not only is damaging from the perspective of preserving these places, but it also highly impacts the quality of life for the people Mm -hmm. in the community. In many of these historic ports where cruise tourism is taking hold, there is very strong local activism on the part of residents against the cruise tourism. because Against it, because in fact, a lot of the economic benefits don't go into the local community. A lot stay actually within the cruise industry. People like to eat on the boat because it's an Mm all-inclusive package. And so their their spending on land is actually pretty limited. And it's really hard to manage some of these large groups that all arrive at once. Erica Avrami is director of the World Monuments Fund's biennial watch list. And she's with us on Travel with Rick Steves to describe some of the latest additions to their Endangered Places listings. The full list is on the WMF.org website. Erica, I was just in Palestine, and I was at the Batir Biblical Terraces. These are terraces Fantastic. that were cut 2,000 years ago. And I heard from local people that the wall that's being built is threatening these precious 2,000-year-old terraces that are so integral to the people's identity there, the, the indigenous culture. Mm-hmm. And now I see that the World Monuments Fund is also aware of the challenges of the Batir Biblical Terraces outside of Bethlehem. Talk about how political destruction can actually be an issue with your work. It's often an issue because heritage is all about identity. And some people see themselves and and their communities and their societies in one way, and others see them in another way. The Bamiyan Buddhas in Afghanistan Mm. are a perfect example Mm. of that sort of struggle in terms of cultural identity. In the case of the Batir Irrigated Terraces, It's such a fascinating cultural landscape that's still being worked. I mean, it's still an Mm -hmm. an active agricultural landscape. And the folks who nominated this to the World Monuments Watch in 2014 came from both Israel as well as the Palestinian territory. So it was really a joint nomination saying, listen, we don't want to get involved in the political side of this. This just can't happen. This is such an important landscape and aspect of our heritage. And the wall will essentially destroy much of what has been built over centuries. That is so exciting that you're aware of the reality that you really can't pick sides in a political squabble, but you can find people on both sides of the issue that recognize that 
this is an issue that transcends the immediate political discussion, and we've just got to do something so it doesn't destroy something important to our heritage. Yes, yes. In Singapore, for example, Bukit Brown, which is a a famous cemetery and, Mm -hmm. and a fabulous green space in the middle of very highly developed and densely developed Singapore, it's the largest Chinese cemetery outside of China. The government has a great deal of foresight to be looking at ways to accommodate a growing population, ensuring that there are good transportation routes as well as housing. But part of what's happened is this unbelievably fantastic landscape and historic uh, graveyard is now being partially destroyed in order to accommodate Mm. a major thoroughfare and in the future housing. So it's really about balancing that history and that identity and the quality of life for people who use Bukit Brown as a recreational space because it's an open green space against the other needs of society in terms of housing or transportation. It's often a very difficult set of decisions that have to be made. And what World Monuments Fund tries to do is really advocate on the side of heritage to say, sometimes you can blend these two agendas effectively. Mm. It's not always an oppositional situation. Erica, when you look back, what are some of the losses that we've experienced? And or what are some of the gains that the World Monuments Fund has, has had some triumphs that inspire you in your work and and make your work both uh, necessary and gratifying? We've had some real losses. We've lost a number of particularly modern buildings. Uh, The Phyllis Wheatley School in New Orleans, for example, which is a fabulous mid-century modern school structure, uh, was demolished. And we've had other modern sites in the UK, for example. We were able to save, help save the Preston bus station, which was on the watch in 2012. But another brutalist site, uh, brutalist architecture, is often very undervalued. Mm. The uh, Birmingham Library is unfortunately still slated Mm. for demolition. So we have a mix of wins and losses. But I think in the end, the most gratifying aspect of the work is really the way in which the watch helps to reengage people and the places of their past. Mm -hmm. And when you see younger generations understanding their history and their culture through a different lens and being able to experience that in an actual place, be it a building or an archaeological site, I think that's really the most rewarding aspect of the work. I love that. The whole idea of the value of raising awareness among young people for sites that are important for their heritage so so their children will have something to know from, from where they came. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with Erica Avrami and uh, her work at the World Monuments Fund. To learn more about her work and what the World Monuments Fund is up to, you can go to their website, wmf.org. Erica, thanks so much and best wishes with your work. Thank you. We'll look at what the world loses when endangered languages disappear in just a bit. Up next on Travel with Rick Steves, mountaineering legend Ed Veesters takes us up to the top of Mount Everest. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. what people call a living legend takes on a whole new meaning when you routinely put your life at risk to climb the world's tallest mountains. Ed Veesters is one of the world's most accomplished climbers. In 2005, he became one of the few to have reached the top of the world's 14 tallest mountains, and he does it without using supplemental oxygen. Ed has received major awards from National Geographic, the Explorers Club, and the American Alpine Club. 
You can see him as a featured climber in the 1998 IMAX film Everest. He's co-authored with David Roberts the bestsellers No Shortcut to the Top and K2, Life and Death on the World's Most Dangerous Mountain. Their latest collaboration is The Mountain, about what Ed calls the irresistible lure of Mount Everest. Ed Viesters, thanks for joining us on Travel with Rick Steves. Yeah, you're welcome. The subtitle of your book is The Irresistible Lure of the World's Highest Peak. What is it that's irresistible about Mount Everest? I think the primary reason is it's the highest peak on Earth, and it will forever be that. And it's become this iconic brand of a mountain. You know, if you want to climb a mountain and have it on your resume, Mm -hmm. no matter where you're from or what you're doing, Everest is probably on that list. I selected it to talk about because I spent 11 expeditions there. I've been on the summit seven times, and I was able to live my dream there when I first climbed it without the use of supplemental oxygen. You've stood on the top of Mount Everest seven times. Take us just on one of those ascents. I mean, I imagine each one had its own story. Describe your most memorable final ascent, the last couple hundred yards. Probably the most memorable for me was the first time I actually got to the top, and that was in the spring of 1990. And you're on this expedition for literally 12 weeks, and it's the last day that you know is going to be the hardest by far, especially when you're not using supplemental oxygen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, above 28,000 feet, the higher you go, the slower you go, simply because of the lack of oxygen. Mm. And I remember having to literally breathe and count 15 breaths for every step that I took, and then willing myself to take that next step. And that goes on for 12 hours on that summit day. So there's a lot of moments during that day, you know, eight or 10 hours into that day where you start to question, why do I want to be doing this right now? This is difficult. It's somewhat painful. I'm suffering. And then you got to kind of internalize that and turn it into a positive and say, you know, if I do push through this, and get to the top, it will feel amazing. And it is amazing once you take those last staggering steps to the top oh. and you're on, uh, on the highest point on earth. You take 15 breaths for each step on that last segment? Correct. And, you know, the slower you go, the higher you are. And, right. and it's just, it's, it's mind over matter, basically. You have to be willing to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Now, Ed, when you stand on the top of Mount Everest, I would imagine it's frustrating because you can't just relax and celebrate it. You're, you're immediately thinking about getting down. What do you do on top? How long can you stay there? What, what does it feel like? It's this amazing moment of elation, and you have this great feeling that, wow, now I don't have to go up anymore. I finally <laughs> get to start going down. But time goes very quickly up there. If, you, if the weather's nice, if it's early enough, I've spent as long as an hour up there. But it it goes by in a flash because you're taking in the view, you're absorbing the moment, you're taking some pictures, and you're correct. You are happy, you are excited, but you aren't quite relaxed because you know you've only done half the climb. And that's something I always try to remember, that getting down is the primary goal, and you have to budget resources, time, energy, and planning to make sure you get down. Once you're at the bottom, that's when you celebrate. So a lot of people have climbed on Everest, and you've done it seven times. Do climbers have fun at the summit, or, or is it all business? It's a little bit of everything. I mean, the business part of it, you know, obviously, if you need to take some photos, if you've got sponsors that are relying on you taking a flag up there, that's the business end of it. But the fun part is just taking in the view. You know, mm. you do a 360. Mm. There's no other mountain higher than you. You're looking down on a sea of mountains. And that's the moment that you try to memorize because you think, wow, I'll never be here again. Are you above the weather? Quite typically, uh, hopefully you're above any type of weather. You know, you're looking down on a sea of clouds. Mm -hmm. In the later part of the day, obviously, in any mountain range in the world, weather starts to build in the afternoons. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you're actually in the clouds Mm. on the summit. Mm. One of my favorite favorite photos in your book is the one of Dougal Haston and Doug Scott. It was called Late in the Day, Ascending 1975, and they survived the highest bivouac ever attempted. I had a sense that they were pushing the limit there, and they were, they were going to get to the top, but because of that, they had to sleep higher than what would be normal. What was the story with that? Yeah, they were, I mean, they decided to push it. They got to a point 300 feet below the summit at 3.30 in the afternoon. Mm. And they made a very conscious decision that knowing three hours later they would be on the summit and that they would have to spend the night 
out at 28,700 feet. So rather than, you know, pulling the plug and going down before it was too late, they accepted it and they somehow survived the night. They dug a hole in the snow. They kept slapping each other in the back. They had conversations with their toes. I mean, they were hallucinating a little bit, but they were so strong and so motivated that they came away unscathed. And they were willing then, because of the the success of that climb, to risk, you know, spending the night out. And that's a huge commitment. Did they do that after summiting or just before summiting? They did that on the way down. That's unique, I suppose. Oh, for sure. And I write about how beautiful that scene is, but also how foreboding it is knowing that yes. nightfall is only minutes away. Oh, would you call that reckless? It's calculated risk. Okay. Um, I mean, these guys were very talented. They knew exactly what they were doing. And I always say that everybody has their own level of acceptable risk. Right. Are you willing to reach a summit at sunset? Some people are. Me personally, I am not. My, mm-hmm. my rule was if I'm not close to the summit or on the summit at two in the afternoon, mm-hmm. I'm going down. Well, now you're famous for climbing without oxygen. How is that experience different? Why do you huff and puff without oxygen when somebody could just stick a tank on and, and not have that extra burden? You know, for me, it, it, I wanted the challenge. And I thought if I was going to go to a mountain that's 29,000 feet, I didn't want to pull it down to my level. I wanted to experience it at its level. And for right. me, that meant choosing not to use supplemental oxygen. Right. I also thought it would be more interesting, less cumbersome, and also, in the end, safer. I wasn't relying on hmm. a life support system mm-hmm. that could potentially fail. And I've seen people high on Everest, you know, their system fails, they mm. run out of oxygen, and it's literally like pulling a plug, and then you're out of luck. Wow. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Ed Veesters, and Ed's book, his latest book, is The Mountain, My Time on Everest, The Irresistible Lure of the World's Highest Peak. Ed's other books are No Shortcuts to the Top, K2, Life and Death in the World's Most Dangerous Mountain, and The Will to Climb. Ed, I understand there's a lot of different routes up Mount Everest. Is, is one of them for the, you know, the relative, uh, not rookies, but the, the easiest, and is one considered like almost impossible? Yeah, there's a lot of different variations to get to the top of Everest. The normal or what we call the easiest way up is via the South Call or the Nepal side. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the route that was pioneered in 1953 by Hillary and Norgay. Mm -hmm. And it is objectively the easiest and simplest way. You know, people talk about amateurs on Everest or rookies, but, you know, (laughs) by and large, the most of the people that are there are highly experienced amateur climbers. They've spent their whole lives climbing other mountains, and then they decide, well, I'm going to try to climb Everest. The hardest routes on Everest tend to be on the other side, the east face, which Mm -hmm. is very steep, but also very objectively dangerous. And there's only been one or two ascents on that side of the mountain. In your book, you, you really respect the Sherpas. You call them the true heroes of Everest. In fact, you dedicate your book to the Sherpas. Tell us about the Sherpas. Oh, they're wonderfully amazing people. You know, they migrated from Tibet several hundred years ago into Nepal over the mountains, and they've kind of settled in the higher elevations of Nepal, 12, 13, 14,000 feet. So physiologically, they've been very adapted to working at altitude. And from the time that they're kids, you know, going from village to village, there's no roads, they have to walk. Mm -hmm. And whatever you have with you, you've got to carry on your back. So they're very accustomed already to carrying loads. And so we go to Nepal and we hire them, a group of them, five, six, 10, 12, to help us carry our loads of equipment up the mountain. And, you know, we treat them equally as team members. They're paid well, they get bonuses, and we integrate them into our expedition team. And we become friends with them. You take people up there for hire. You hear a story about these wealthy people that have blisters and they have to be carried the last leg of the journey or something like that. What is the state these days? Uh, is there an infrastructure in place so there's ladders and steps and anybody who's in good shape with a good guide can get to the top? Or is it embarrassing? Is it too congested? Well, it's congested because it's very popular and there's a lot of people out doing adventure. That's why it's congested. Mm-hmm. There's kind of a misconception that, you know, yes, you're paying a lot of money, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars to be a client on one of these climbs, but it doesn't mean you have a ticket to the top. Mm. You have to be competent, you have to have skill, you have to be strong enough 
to climb to the top of Everest. And hmm. it's the job of the guides to do the logistics, to make the decisions. And if there's any point along the way that you as the client aren't performing, it's our jobs as guides to say, you know what, I think you've reached your high point. Wow. So, you know, in the general public, you hear about rich and wealthy people going to the top and getting pulled and getting carried. It simply doesn't happen. <laughs> the mountain dictates who gets to the top, not the guides. Okay. And you're hired or um, a mountaineer would be hired and, and it's expensive and these people have put forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 into it. They have to go with the guide's advice. If they say, this is as high as you're going to go, I don't care what you paid, you can't pay more, you're not going to the top. Right. As guides, you can imagine the pressure we have. The more oh, somebody yeah. is investing, that can tend to trickle into your decision-making. And that's what happens a lot on Everest. You know, there's a lot of pressure on these guides with six or eight of these clients that are paying a lot of money to make decisions based on success rather mm -hmm. than safety. And that shouldn't come into play. I've always said, whether I'm guiding on Rainier or Mount McKinley or Everest, the rules have to be the same. And if anything, stricter on Everest. I would think that would be a very strong precondition for this whole thing is I'm the boss, I'm the guide, safety is fundamental. Sure. When people sign up with me, I lay out the ground rules. Right. I say, here's the deal. Here's how it's going to work. And if you don't agree, don't come with me. I don't want your money. Ed Viesters is our guide on Travel with Rick Steves, telling us about his expeditions to the top of Mount Everest, which he details in his latest book, The Mountain. You can find out more about Ed's climbs on his website. It's edvesters.com, spelled V-I-E-S-T-U-R-S. Ed, is there a lot of infrastructure that's in place that just stays there when you're climbing the south route up Everest? Well, the infrastructure that's there is what we put in every time we go. There's the ice fall, which is the first part of the climb right from base camp. It's this jumbled area of ice blocks and crevasses. And to negotiate a pathway through there, we bring ladders mm -hmm. and we make bridges and we climb very steep faces with these ladders. We have to carry equipment onto the mountain, the tents, the ropes, the anchors. But do those ladders and things, do they stay there for the next year? No, they stay for the duration of the expedition, which could be eight or 10 weeks. And at the end of the expedition, we bring everything off. If oh. you left a ladder in the ice fall, that ice fall is going to move in the next two or three months, and those ladders are going to get crunched oh, okay. and destroyed. Ed, you've, you've attempted 11 times. You've got to the summit seven times. Tell us about the four times. Do you feel defeated when you don't get to the top? It, it must feel a little deflating. Well, it is deflating, but it, I don't feel defeated. The four times that I did not get to the top, it wasn't based on my lack of motivation or ability. It's always been because of conditions beyond my control, and I'm willing to accept that. We call it listening to the mountain. No matter how ambitious you are, how motivated you want to be, at some point, sometimes on these mountains, the conditions are simply too dangerous, whether mm -hmm. it's weather or avalanche, where you have to know it's time to turn around. And it was actually on my first expedition to Everest that I turned around 300 feet from the summit. Whoa, three, you, oh, you could taste the summit. You could see the summit. Oh. Conditions were worsening. It, the weather was coming in, and my partner and I, we said, you know what? We could get to the top no matter what, mm -hmm. but we're not going to survive the descent. Mm -hmm. And I've, all, you know, I've always said climbing has to be a round <laughs> trip. It doesn't make sense if you just go to the summit. You have to get down. And if you walk away, I don't call those failures. They're no. called non-successes, non-successes. You can't Monday morning quarterback that. You got to go with the best decision and the weather dictates it a lot of time, I would suppose. Right. And you see things, you feel things. A lot mm -hmm. of the decisions we make are based on our instinct. Right. I've always said, if it feels wrong, mm -hmm. it is wrong. You just walk away. There's a mentality up there that if 40 people are going on a certain day, no matter what, you kind of want to get swept along into that group think. Mm -hmm. And I've always felt, no, it's better to make your own decision and, mm -hmm. and let people go one way. And if you feel like going the other way, mm -hmm. you turn around and go down. Well, that's the mark of a, a good leader on the mountain, I would suppose. How is climbing Everest a personal triumph and how is it a matter of teamwork? It's both. I mean, you have to be, as an individual, you have to be ready to go. You've got to be highly trained. You've got to be physically fit, mentally motivated. And as part of a team, you have to contribute to that team. I learned so much about teamwork 
climbing mountains. You know, early on, I was invited to go on expeditions and I was one of eight. And knowing that maybe only one or two of us would eventually get to the summit, but we mm. all worked together, helping to carry loads of equipment, helping to establish the camps, knowing that our contribution was a contribution to the success of the team itself. Well, haven't you actually given motivational talks at corporations on teamwork? Yeah, I do a lot of speaking. I mean, businesses and corporations, they love the mountain as a metaphor, hmm. the teamwork, mm -hmm. the risk management in the financial world is, a, is the big metaphor, the leadership decisions, hmm. um, you know, making hard decisions, letting the team provide input, but ultimately the leader has to make the final decision. So all those things that we do in the mountains, people can use those same ideas in business as good, well. Good, good, strong parallels. Now, you summited, uh, your last summit, you were, uh, what, nearly 50 years old. You're 54 now. Is it remarkable for a 50-year-old person to get to the summit? Uh, what does it mean now for you at 54 as a mountaineer? You know, for me, when I climbed uh, my last time on Everest, I was just shy of 50. And it wasn't that big of a deal for me. I'd been doing it, you know, for the last 30 years, and my body was still fit. I was still ready to do it. And I could probably still do it today. Mm -hmm. I think for the average 50-year-old, if you've not been physically fit your whole life, if you haven't been climbing, it might be a harder concept to climb Everest. But mm -hmm. for somebody like me that's been doing it my whole life, it wasn't really all that bad. We've been speaking with Ed Viesters, his book, The Mountain, My Time on Everest, The Irresistible Lure of the World's Highest Peak. And people can learn about Ed Viesters' climbs and his adventures at edviesters.com, E-D-V-I-E-S-T-U-R-S.com. Ed, talking to you is such an inspiration. What inspiration do you get standing on top of the world's highest mountain? You know, the fact that I chose a path in my life and I chose to do something rather difficult and I never gave up. You know, I, I, I can truly say, and I talk about this in my books, that I have lived my dreams. You know, I, I grew up in Illinois of all places and as a kid dreamed of climbing Everest. And I took all those steps necessary. I learned, I met the right people. I was patient enough. I listened to the mountain. And I think in the end, based on my patience and humility, that the mountain allowed me to climb to its summit. Life lessons from the top of Mount Everest. Ed Viesters, thanks so much. You're welcome. what the world loses when languages die. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Experts figure there are nearly 7,000 different languages on this planet. But every month, that number gets a little smaller. Russ Reimer's been investigating just what the world loses as minority languages become endangered and eventually disappear. He's contributed to the Vanishing Voices series at National Geographic, and the Overseas Press Club selected his writing on this topic as the best magazine reporting from abroad in 2013. Russ, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Now, you studied uh, what, a little language in Siberia, one in India, and one in Mexico. Tell us why you took this on, and, and basically, what's the state of big languages and little languages on this planet now? Languages have long fascinated me, and I've written about them previously for The New Yorker. And So National Geographic called me when they were wanting to do a story about the plight of endangered languages, of which there are very many. There are 7,000 languages in the world. Among, you know, 7 billion people, that sounds like everybody would have a fair share of speakers. But in fact, the largest several languages dominate, and there are a whole slew of languages that have just a handful of speakers, maybe several thousand, maybe only a dozen, maybe only one. Wow. We were interested in finding some languages among those enormous variety of languages that are endangered that would demonstrate the plight of these languages worldwide. Now, why does it matter? I mean, you know, the, the, the gist of your article is these are precious and, and they need to be mm -hmm. respected. It seems to me it'd be more efficient if all these little languages just uh, chucked it in and, and, you know, just spoke English. It's on the computer. It's efficient. And that's a widely held opinion. Uh, you know, I talk to people who say, well, it's a problem that we have this 
enormous variety of languages. If everybody spoke the same language, then everybody would be on a level playing field and technology would be so much easier and learning would be easier to format. It would be a much more efficient world. The other opinion is that there is a tremendous value hidden inside these individual languages. The diversity of languages is somewhat akin to biodiversity, and we're used to the concept that biodiversity hides many hidden treasures. We're, we're used to the idea that there may be a tree in the Amazon that's undiscovered, but once discovered may offer enormous medicinal qualities, for instance. Hmm. Languages are analogous, and as linguists uncover more of these languages, because they are by no means all discovered, and as they actually work to ferret out their secrets, they're providing lots of valuable information on several levels. Uh, mm -hmm. One of those levels is just cultural. It tells us a lot about the variety of cultures in the world and what's arbitrary and what's universal among all of the world's cultures. And then what did you learn? You, you were in Siberia, India, and Mexico. Did your study bear that out? What's an example of how the presence of these small languages enriches us from a cultural point of view? Well, to pick an example, when I was in Kazil, which is the capital city of Tuva, which is a Russian republic down on the Mongolian border near Kyrgyzstan, it's a discrete state, but it's very removed. And its language is remarkable for staging something of a comeback now. It's off hmm. an endangered list and doing fairly well. But the things that are natural in Tuvan life that are expressed in their language, I found remarkable. For instance... Tuvans never speak of the future being ahead of them. They see the future as being behind them. They would never say, I'm looking forward to the day after tomorrow. They would say, I'm looking forward to yesterday. And this seems to be very strange to our Western ears, but our way of thinking sounds strange to them. They reason that if the future were ahead of you, you could see it, it would be in plain view. But the past is what's in plain view, so that must be what's ahead of you. Yeah. This is just a small linguistic concept, but it changed my appreciation of the way I go through the world, you know, changed my appreciation of English. I guess you can pick up from other languages, they have more focus on different dimensions of life than we would have. I, I remember uh, mm -hmm. reading in your article, you talked about, I believe in Tuvan, there's 50 different words for family relations, much more than what we would have. In the language of the Seri, another group that I studied and visited on the coast of Mexico, that's also true. They have a tremendous concentration on the way family members relate to each other. So, for instance, in Seri, a woman would have a different word for father than a man would. The mm. relationship is uh, very different between women and men to their mm. parents and expressed in different vocabulary. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Russ Reimer, and we're talking about vanishing voices and dying languages. Russ has written an article for National Geographic magazine called Vanishing Voices, and it's amazing to think that there's 7,000 languages on this planet, but half of those languages are spoken by only 8 million people. There's a lot of small languages, and they can be small and vibrant, and we can learn from these languages different ways to appreciate different dimensions of cultures. Do some languages have number systems that predate the 10-base number system that we, we just think is standard? This is an area where the cultural diversity of the world becomes evident. Some languages, indeed, don't use a 10-base system. Some languages don't even have numbers. They will only refer to less and more or to general quantities. Wow. Others may have an even more elaborate set of systems than our 10-base system. But a number is not the only thing that we just take for granted that languages demonstrate the diversity of. Color is another oh, yeah. tremendous variable within languages, and languages don't always have the same number of colors. The Aka language did not have a, a word for yellow. Even though yellow was a prized color in jewelry, the yellow beads of the Tajan mm. necklace was, was very prized. But if you asked them what color it was, they would answer with the same word they used for red. And that's not so uncommon. The way we separate colors visually that we think is very much set in stone varies from language to language quite a bit. I suppose it's ethnocentric just to think that why shouldn't people just use the same language so we don't have to have multilingual signs and so on. Uh, these are beautiful cultures that uh, are not basing happiness and success and fulfillment on our values necessarily. And they mm -hmm. have languages that fit their cultures that have evolved for thousands of years. Absolutely. The Seri, or Kong Kayak, is their other word for themselves. It's 
a tribe that is based in the Sonoran Desert right on the edge of the Gulf of California in that northwest section of Mexico. It's very remote and they've because they've had an antagonistic relationship for hundreds of years with the majority Spanish culture, it's very uh, culturally removed also. Mm-hmm. But their language reflects some of what you're talking about also. They, for instance, being nomadic, see possessions as a burden. Your possessions are the things you have to carry. So they see wealth as a problem, and wealth that's not shared they see as a sin. So they have a phrase. They had some just lovely phrases, but one of them was that the day the Sari become rich, they will cease to exist. Wow, wealth not—I'm writing that down. Wealth not shared is a sin, and that would be embedded in their way of thinking, and it's just how the kids learn their language. When a Sari tribesman dies traditionally— they would be buried with everything that they right. own, which would amount to a few bowls. So actually, language was the only inherited object in a Sari family. Stories and tales, the verbal legacy, was the only inheritance. This is like a whole new light on cultural diversity. Russ, we're, we're talking about these small languages. Is there a, a level at which a language is not sustainable and becomes terminally ill? Does it have to have a written language? Does it have to have media or a newspaper or a university or... How do you measure the health of a language and predict its future? Well, of course, not having a newspaper and a TV station and a currency means you're at the mercy of the languages that do have those things because they are going to be the languages where commerce is done in the world and Mm -hmm. and the languages that have to be spoken if you want to trade. So a small language that doesn't have a media and a newspaper and university, it may be healthy, but it'll be apart from the, the modern world and in a Western sense, uh, losing out on all the modern prosperity. And to that degree, speakers of small languages have to also speak a larger language if they want to engage with the larger world. Well, now that kind of takes us to Europe, because I know in the Mm -hmm. last generation, the small languages of Europe have made a remarkable comeback. Mm -hmm. But I think most of those people also speak German or Spanish or English to have an outreach to the rest of the world. True. Many languages like the Tuvan language are making comebacks. The mystery that you're alluding to in your question before is that a neighboring language may not be doing as well as the language that's making a comeback. So one language can Mm. be building back up from near oblivion to several thousand or a hundred thousand speakers while the language next door is dwindling down to a dozen and then to two and then to none. And the difference that people I talked to kept mentioning was pride. It's not something that can happen from the outside. A language is not easily buttressed from the outside. But the one aspect that keeps a language strong and will allow it to revive is the pride of the native speakers. So naturally, parents are telling their children, no, you need to speak Hindi. You need to speak English because I want you to have a good education. I want you to have a fortune, you know, good fortunes in the world to break out of this little village. Mm -hmm. And yet, in the little village in India where I visited, I remember the day that these two teenagers showed up. This is an area of India, Rick, that is especially remote because it's contested border territory between China and India. So even other Indians can't cross into Arunachal Pradesh without Mm. federal permission. Uh, National Geographic had to work to get permission for us to even go into this mountain region. The villagers in Paliji, this little village that I was staying in, had never seen a dollar bill. Wow. Uh, the American culture was that far into them. And yet, these teenagers showed up one day to said, we want to present something to you, meaning the linguists that I was traveling with. And they sang a pitch-perfect South Central Los Angeles rap song. With all the hand gestures, with all the, you know, the bobbing neck, like gang signs, they had the whole thing down. And where they got it, I don't know. I was dismayed because I thought, well, you know, God, look what the first thing they picked up from American (laughs) culture is this. But the linguists were delighted. And I said, "Uh, why? And they said, because they could have done that rap song and... Hindi, they could have done that rap song in English, but wow. they chose to do it in Akka. That's and when pride. the teenagers in a community are choosing their native language to do their expression, that's the sign of the kind of pride that will let a language persist. Beautiful. That's promising. Journalist and author Russ Reimers, our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. His latest book is a mystery called Paris Twilight, and he's written for the National Geographic series on vanishing languages and enduring voices. His website is russreimer.com. 
That's R-Y-M-E-R. You can hear samples of Tuvan and other endangered languages in the National Geographic's Talking Dictionary Project. There's a link in this week's show details in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Russ, when a language dies, is there an attempt to preserve it, and, uh, and, and how does that work? Because they die, how often? I mean, what did you say, every, every few days a language dies? Every few days a language dies. Uh, within the century, linguists expect half of the world's languages to disappear. Half. So are we working to preserve these? A hundred years from now, will anybody even know what it sounds like if we don't do something right now? The languages are, are being recorded by linguists. Of course, with the great number of languages and their obscurity and also the difficulty of, of locating them in these very distant outposts in the world, as many of them are, that's quite a challenge. And many languages will die without being recorded. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the more daunting thing is that you can't record everything about it. Mm-hmm. The language itself is part of a larger mm-hmm. practice. And the connection between language and practice is really a tremendous concern. I met a young man named Paria Nemesau in the Himalayas. Uh, he was a speaker of Akka and taught actually at the Jesuit school because he was also fluent in English and Hindi. And he pulled out over dinner one night, a very traditional dinner in the center of this dark hut with the fire going in the middle of the hut and the smoke going up through the roof. He pulled out a little cloth sachet that held a number of exotic items. It held uh, the jaw of a river pike. It held a serpent's jaw. It had a crystal there. Uh, there was a tiger's tooth. And so he told me that this was his father's shaman's sachet, that this was a sachet of, of things that his father could use to work spells that would cure people. And his grandfather had had the sachet before his father. And I asked him, so are you the next shaman? Are you inheriting this kit and the knowledge to put it to work? And he said, no, his father had died before he had imparted the spells. And although he had the items, he did not have the words. And oh. without the words, the sachet was useless. So there's a tremendous conjunction between practice of a culture and the language that goes with it. And it's very daunting and almost impossible to really preserve that, even if you can get in dictionary form or in recording form, the language itself. That right there sums up the value of these small languages and the tragedy when, when the sadness, when one dies and our planet becomes a little less culturally diverse. Mm-hmm. These small languages offer us information about our world that we consider important. And that is back to biodiversity. Small languages contain much more information about nature than Hmm. large languages do because the speakers are very often much closer to nature and rely on it at a much more survival level. And so they are close observers and they enshrine what they observe in their vocabulary. So a scientist can learn about nature by just uh, studying a language of a culture that's closer to nature than we are? That's true. And the Seri, for instance, on the coast of the Gulf of California, have provided science with numerous revelations hmm. about how the biological world works and how different species act that we would not have gotten without their help. So when we hmm. think of these languages primitive, we're learning a very high-level scientific information from these languages. For instance, the Seri have a word for a turtle that the word contains the information that is the, the turtle that goes to the bottom of the sea to hibernate. It was a behavior that the scientists thought was outlandish. They had not heard of a turtle acting like this, but the word was there, and so they investigated and found out, yes, actually, this species of turtle hibernates in the sand at the bottom of the ocean. And, um, ah, and, and so here's an example of biological behavior and peer-reviewed scientific papers in science and nature really reflecting the knowledge of these nomadic tribesmen. Wow. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been exploring the concept of vanishing voices and dying languages with Russ Reimer. And Russ has written an article for National Geographic magazine called Vanishing Voices. Russ, I'd like to close with just a comment from you. In your article, you wrote, the tongues least spoken still have much to say. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? I mean that I certainly came away from my travels to, you know, the Indian Himalayas, to Siberia, to the coast of Mexico. I I came away from those travels feeling that my introduction there 
by people that spoke these different languages to their languages and to their way of thought told me things that I could never have suspected. Introduced me to worldviews that I found novel and enlightening. I feel that I was changed in my perspectives permanently by having the privilege of talking to these people and having them open up and talk to me about their language. I think that what I experienced on an emotional level is true on a more factual, cultural level in the world, and that there is a value across the board ranging from just hardcore scientific information on one side to the deepest insights into the way our cultures work and, and what the variety of human experience is that would be lost as these languages die, and that the hmm. efforts of some linguists, but mostly of the native speakers themselves, to honor their languages and to keep them alive is preserving an international treasure. Maybe these small languages enable us to hold a mirror up against our culture and see that while we're wealthy in a lot of ways, in some cases maybe we can uh, learn from their less material wealth and, and their connection with each other and, and culture and nature. I would agree. Russ Reimer, thanks so much for your work, and it's been uh, fascinating to think about uh, all those little languages struggling and thriving and and adding to cultures on this fascinating planet of ours. Best wishes. Great. Thank you, Rip. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York, the studio in Portland, Maine, and Colorado Public Radio for their help this week. You'll find more in the radio section of ricksteves.com. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, freshly updated this year, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.